Welcome, Savvy Investor, to Skyline Views. Welcome to another episode of Skyline Views. I'm Chris Mills. My guest today is Willie Mandrell. Willie, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, Chris. How are you? Doing very well. Uh, we're talking about Boston today, and uh, you're the guy to talk to. So why don't we start with your story and how we got into real estate, then we'll move into the market. Uh, sure. I mean, uh, the, the variety of different things kind of pushed me to the industry, pushed me to the business. But um, just being in school and, and get it, I went to uh, uh, Northeastern University here in Boston and went to school for business finance, uh, got out of school and started working in financial services. <clears throat> and, um, you know, seeing behind the scenes of uh, a lot of retirement accounts, a lot of uh, uh, investment portfolios, you, um, you see how broken the traditional retirement industry is. Um, so, you know, through, you know, that education that I got, I started searching for other alternative means to um, become financially free, become financially independent and, uh, you know, stumbled across real estate and, you know, just kind of been diving in ever since. And uh, uh, that was back in 2006, uh, 2008, you know, housing market crash, 2010, I left the corporate, corporate America altogether uh, and, and really never looked back. That's cool. That's cool. We're, we're kind of kindred in that way. I'm a bit contrarian as an advisor because I, I don't like a lot of the typical models that, that you're talking about. It sounds like they forced you out altogether, um, forced right. you to kind of change gears. Yeah. Um, it, it just doesn't work for a lot of people. For some people, I guess it would. But um, yeah, I chose to go a different route personally, you know, long, long before um, I kind of looked at that stuff and I was like, well, you know, you can kind of incorporate it a little bit, but it can't be, you can't rest your whole retirement on it, your whole family's future. I, I definitely, I definitely agree. I was, I was pretty deep in the industry too. I mean, I had my, my series seven, my 24, 63, six, uh, I had my life and life and health uh, producers license studied for my CFA. Uh, sat for the CFA exam for a little while, so pretty deep. But I just didn't. Uh, at the end of the day, I just didn't believe as um, you know in that industry. I like real estate. It's it's a tangible asset. It's an improvable asset. I you know I have a lot more control over my uh, financial future uh, via real estate than I did with the markets. Mm -hmm. So what did that uh, transition look like? How how heavily invested were you at any given point, and did you? You know, did you keep any holdings? Did you add to, you know, is it supplemental at some point or you you just kind of jump ship altogether? Well, I wasn't too uh, invested personally into the markets anyway. I was in, the, in, that, in that industry, um, more or less in a compliance role. Um, I wasn't a, a broker myself. Um, so yeah, I mean, I still have holdings in the market right now. I think, it, you know, diversification is important. Um, I think you should be, you know, uh, participating in the market, participating in the real estate industry, uh, and you know, uh, you know, and ideally some some form of uh, business investment as well. Um, but you know, for me, I you know, I bought you know my first couple of units in 2006. Um, it took me a little while. I think we bought the next one in 2008. Uh, was doing every other every other year. Then 2010, next couple of real estate investments, um, and then really over the last five years, really just kind of scaled up the portfolio. Um, you know, as the market started to recover uh, nationwide and specifically here in Boston. Great, great. So what kind of um, ratios are, are we talking um, as far as your, your total portfolio? Like how much do you try to keep liquid versus investable 
investable capital where you're putting sinking it into real estate? Oh, I mean, I I'm not a model to follow by if you're if you're that's a very you know uh, question uh, you know for somebody else. I'm not a model to follow. If you ask me, I mean, my liquid uh, my liquidity compared to my net worth is probably at a you know two uh, percent or something like that. It's it's ridiculously low, but I'm. I understand, and most people's fear with real estate is the, the illiquid, you know, um, you know, asset that's there. You really can't cash in. But I'm, I'm, I, you know, um, savvy myself or position myself in a person that I, I view myself as a person that's pretty savvy when it comes to money, and I know that if I need access to capital, uh, I can go get that. I mean, there's very various ways. Uh, people look at real estate and say it's an illiquid investment, and that's why I really try to stay away from it. Um, but that that's assuming that you actually have to sell the property in order to get access to the capital, which is not true. Um, there are various times where I need capital. I need something. There's a, in, an investment that pops up and uh, let's say I need some money in two weeks. Um, you know, I can always tap into the equity that's in that position via a home equity line of credit, via a home equity loan or whatever it may be, and, uh, and go pull some cash out to do the things that I need to do. So for me, I, I don't I personally, um, and I'll give you a little bit more feedback. You know, the reason I'm, I would say two to 3% of my net worth is liquid, um, is because I am the type of person that, um, I like to keep my money moving. I like to keep my money working. I like to keep my money producing more money for me. Liquid cash doesn't produce anything for you. So, um, I am not a model to follow in terms of, you know, I, I know that's a little bit risky for some people. Some people would say, I like to have six months or 10 months or a year liquid, you know, uh, of my personal, um, you know, uh, you know, balance sheet or, you know, my, uh, my budget uh, for the year, you know, about a year's worth of savings uh, liquid. I'm nowhere near that just because, like I said, I like to keep my, all my uh, money invested into something that's producing more money for me. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, it's pretty common among real estate investors. We kind of throw everything right. we have at those, those money-making investments. And um, right. so, yeah, that's, I just, uh, it's a question I like to ask because uh, a lot of people have different philosophies regarding that. So do you have a favorite asset class? Um, I know it sounds like you started single family. Um, a lot of people in this financial, uh, you know, an economic environment are either going back to it or, or supplementing with it. Um, do you have a favorite asset class, both historically and something you're looking to now that we're in a little bit different environment in 21? Um, I'm primarily in residential multifamily. Um, people look at when people say multifamily, it's pretty broad, right? I mean, multifamily is everything from, you know, a 200 unit building down to a two unit building, right? So I'm in the residential multifamily space, uh, meaning I operate primarily both the bulk of my portfolio is two to four units. I would actually say it's closer to three to four units. And there's a, a couple of different reasons for that. If I was in Tennessee, um, you know, I've never invested in Tennessee, but I know there's a lot of single families there and it's a different market. You know, you have a lot of uh, uh, investors, you know, in the single family market, you know, uh, somewhere in South and, you know, the other country west of, uh, of where I am here in the Northeast, here in Boston. Um, single families just do not make sense. You're going to, your typical single family, I would say, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes outside of Boston is going to cost you six to 700,000 bucks. Um, and it's going to rent for $3,500, uh, maybe, maybe four grand at most. Those numbers just don't make financial sense uh, here. And it never have, even when the single families were selling for 400,000, 
um, they were still renting for 1500 bucks, 1600 bucks, and it never really made financial sense. Um, here, what we have is we have a lot of uh, 100 year old three family homes. Uh, and that is my primary investment vehicle. Uh, it is still residential. We describe it as multifamily, but it's still residential property. Um, I, uh, in, in some ways, compete with your, uh, your typical homeowner as well, because they're going out and looking for the same thing. Um, you can buy it with an FHA loan. You can buy it with a conventional loan. Uh, so kind of competing with them as well. For me, where I make my mark is uh, I buy most of my stuff that's dilapidated. Most of my most of the stuff that I'm going out and buying needs an extensive amount of work. It needs a new roof. The foundation is probably cracked a little bit. The windows are bad. The heating systems are bad. Um, there's an extensive amount of work there. Uh, typically, what I'm doing is uh, uh, the the Burr strategy, the the buy, uh, renovate, rent, and refinance. Uh, your your Boston numbers look something like uh, a six hundred thousand dollar purchase price, uh, uh, two hundred thousand dollars in renovations, and about a million dollar uh, value uh, when it's all said and done is typically what I shoot for. Yep, yep, good round numbers. I like it. Thank you for that. Uh, let's span out a little bit to the Boston market in general. Um, can you tell us what 2020 was like in Boston and what you're seeing going forward into 21 as far as numbers, uh, maybe cap rates, investor sentiment, things like that? Yeah, sure. Um, 2020, uh, it was it was tough. It wasn't it wasn't so Boston is a big college town. Um, a, a lot of universities here. Um, Harvard is here. MIT is here. Uh, Northeastern, BU, BC. Uh, it's a big college town. And when you have a pandemic, coronavirus, uh, and all these colleges tell you to go away, uh, we're going to go virtual learning now. It hits Boston, uh, certain neighborhoods of Boston pretty hard. We have a lot of big uh, landlords here who are uh, primarily focused on those student markets, those Brookline, uh, Cambridge market. If you know anything about Boston, those are all very student heavy uh, populations. Those rents right now are down, uh, I want to say almost nearly double digits. I want to say close to just under 9, 10%, somewhere around there in terms of what they were getting for rents what they're you know compared to what they're getting now they're offering all types of incentives uh three months rent three you know a couple months rent you know parking is now you know being tossed in there uh you know all types of amenities to get people back into those you know particular units if you wanted to live in a uh a brighton or brookline or alston or cambridge market that are tra traditionally student markets um, you can get into those relatively easy compared to what you were, you know, a couple of years ago. I am not in that student market. I have one building, one three family that is uh, close to Northeastern University. Um, we are probably down uh, probably a little bit more than that. We're probably down about 15% compared to where we were or expected to be uh, prior to the market. But the bulk of my portfolio, I would say, you know, 90% uh, of what we do is uh, Section 8 housing. So we are in, you know, uh, particular neighborhoods where the bulk of our, our tenant base are, are voucher holders. Section 8 uh, subsidy holders are our primary uh, uh, tenant base. So we didn't take as much of a hit. Uh, we have some market rate tenants and those market rate tenants happen to be, um, I have a couple of people in the restaurant industry and a couple of people um, who were in uh, smaller office jobs that got cut when, you know, things tightened up. Um, so I would say, you know, I was operating somewhere around 50 to 60 units. Um, 
obviously that that'll grow over the next couple of years but over the last over the pandemic it was about 50 or 60 and we had about three or four tenants who were i would say uh significantly behind meaning more than a couple of months behind I had uh one who basically when the pandemic started in march of last year to april of this year has not paid me a single dime uh mm -hmm. that is the anomaly the bulk of them the bulk of those uh you know uh, three or four tenants are you know a few months behind going into 2021 um, the subsidies have really stepped up. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, federal money that's come into the state. There's a lot of state money that's being distributed to help tenants. Uh, Massachusetts is a very liberal place to live, uh, very tenant-friendly uh, tenant uh, state. Uh, so us landlords are going to take a hit uh, for the last year, but we're starting to see those subsidies come around. Uh, knock on wood, um, I was actually filling out some paperwork before we, uh, before we hopped on this. And um, we're starting to see the uh, the Fed and the state and local government start to come in and step in and uh, uh, try to uh, break even or try to help those tan uh, landlords stay into their excuse me help those tenants stay into their their units uh, by compensating the landlords for back rent uh, and other fees and everything that has been uh, assessed to that particular tenant. So we're working those, and I see those kind of leveling off. Uh, we are opening back up here in Boston. Um, restaurants are opening back up almost to full capacity. Vaccines are here. So we're hoping, uh, you know, as we go into 2021, summer 2021, uh, things will get back, back to normal. But again, we are, you know, a big college town. So it, it really depends on when, you know, you know, the universities get back to full capacity. Uh, and if they, if they get back, then Boston will be back in, you know, in no time. So. Gotcha. Thanks for that. What do you think it'll take for rents to start coming back? I mean, nationally or just uh, I guess here. in the Boston area, you know, you mentioned the, the double digit drop in rental rates. Um, it's, just, it's all about it's all about student housing. It's, it's, it's when the when the universities feel comfortable enough to get uh, to have students come back on campus, uh, you know, fully. Uh, I'm not even sure if that's going to happen. I think, you know, if um, it, it all depends because those those universities, especially you know Harvard, um, Northeastern, MIT, are very uh, heavily invested. They're, they're real estate basically investors themselves. Uh, they're very heavily invested into the Boston real estate market as well. So long term, I don't see them allowing students to stay off campus too much longer um, because it's going to affect their real estate portfolio and their bottom line. Uh, and the value of those universities are heavily invested into the you know the Boston real estate market. So I would say you know maybe not 2021 um, because they're obviously their reputations are on the line as well. But I would say 2022, uh, I think a lot of those universities are going to see uh, you know a significant uh, pullback in terms of what they allow to be done online, and, and they would like to see students come back on campus. So I think once that happens, their dormitories are going to be filled up, their student housing, their direct student housing, going to be filled up. And now it's going to have an, you know, that ripple effect for the rest of uh, Boston real estate um, driving rents back up. So I would say over the next couple of years, it depends on what the universities do. And if they uh, if they react the way I expect them to, then we'll see rents shoot right back up to where they are, uh, to where they were right back up to uh, pre pandemic, where we basically had a shortage of housing. Um, and it was basically just difficult to find a rental, you know, anyhow. So, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's interesting that everything is is that tied. So even if you're not in quote unquote student housing, your portfolio is pretty directly tied to it, right? Yeah, in some respect. Again, we are you know we're majority of our our, our portfolios in the uh, the subsidy uh, market. Um, so we're not 
directly tied to it, but I mean, it is such a big college town that it does have a direct effect on uh, pretty much everything. That's that's the center of our our universe here, and you know, kind of the real estate. What are, what are the colleges doing? And then it kind of has the ripple effect out from uh, out from there. Um, you get rid of MIT, you get rid of Harvard University, and uh, you know a couple other the BC, BU, um, and uh, Boston's a definitely a completely different place. Hmm. What are the other major employers that would affect things uh, economically there in Boston? Uh, our hospitals, um, big you know, uh, people come from all over the world, um, specialty hospitals here. So it's the it's the the colleges and then the. Uh, the, uh, the medical uh, field as well. Um, a lot of people come here for, um, you know, uh, you know, the jobs that we, uh, that we offer through the medical industry and end up staying here, uh, which also has a, uh, a pressure, um, you know, an economic pressure on housing here as well. So uh, Mass Ioneer, uh, Children's Hospital, some of the best um, uh, medical uh, facilities in the world are right here in Boston as well. So I would say the universities and then the, um, or medical facilities as well. Gotcha. So uh, lastly, after we, you know, weather this and come out on the other side, what's next for the Mandrell company? Uh, just continuing to scale. Uh, you know, I think, um, you know, I love what I do. Um, I, I want to, getting out of, and again, uh, I, I get this question often is, you know, or do you want to go to 10 unit buildings or 20 unit buildings? very difficult here in Boston, you know, the barrier to entry in that particular market is, you know, that now you're diving into that student, that student housing and some other, you know, some other, uh, you know, the, where the big landlords play very, very uh, difficult uh, barriers to entry there. I actually like it a lot in the residential multifamily space. Um, I, I find uh, that my margins are better, I can purchase uh, often better uh, deals, so to speak, and, um, you know, come out with a little bit uh, more of an equity play or substantial equity on the other end uh, than you could if you're buying on strictly cap rate uh, and you're playing with Marcus and Millichap, you're playing with, uh, you know, some of the more larger, uh, you know, commercial brokers who are really savvy and then commercial landlords who are really savvy um, versus I'm, you know, where I'm playing with, you know, the, there is still uh, room to, uh, you know, make a, you know, 15% return on investment, you know, in that smaller residential space. So for me, it's just continuing to scale. And, uh, you know, as long as I'm having fun doing what I'm doing. Um, and then, you know, I, you know, I'm also exploring a couple other neighboring places, uh, neighboring states like Rhode Island, um, as uh, Boston starts to tighten up just a little bit, uh, you know, I'm looking for a better return on my money uh, in places like uh, Rhode Island or New Hampshire, uh, but staying probably most likely in the uh, in the Northeast for now. Gotcha, gotcha. Why don't you uh, tell folks where they can find you if they want to reach out? Sure. Uh, my YouTube channel is probably best, uh, youtube.com uh, forward slash W Mandrell. Uh, you can also Google Willie Mandrell. I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, um, Bigger Pockets, several other places as well. I uh, also have a new book out. Uh, it's called Cash Flow Secrets. It's available on Amazon. We talk all about getting into that, those first couple multifamilies. If you're listeners, if there's any new, uh, you know, people getting into the business and want to explore the real estate business, Cash Flow Secrets is all about how to get the financing, uh, the why, the who, the what, and everything about getting those first uh, two to 10 units uh, and kind of breaking into this business. And that's available on Amazon. It's Cash Flow Secrets. Awesome. I'll link to all those in the show notes. Thanks for sharing everything this morning. Really appreciate your time, Willie.
Absolutely, Chris. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for listening to another episode of Skyline Views with Chris Mills. We hope you found this valuable and useful. Feel free to share it with friends or family that could benefit as well. Please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss anything. We really appreciate it. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Connect with us through thehaneycompany.com. See you next time. The information provided in this episode is not intended as specific tax or legal advice and may not be relied upon for purposes of avoiding any federal tax penalties. Skyline Views, The Haney Company, their employees and representatives are not authorized to give tax or legal advice. Individuals are advised to seek advice from their own tax or legal counsel. Individuals involved in the estate planning process should work with an estate planning team, including their own personal legal or tax counsel. The information provided here does not constitute personal financial advice, but is meant for the conveyance of information for educational purposes only. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Past performance is not indicative of future returns. Guarantees are backed by the claims-paying ability of the insurer. Christopher Mills is a registered representative of Coastal Equities Incorporated and an investment advisor representative of Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated. Neither Coastal Equities Incorporated nor Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated is affiliated with Skyline Views or The Haney Company. Advisory services are offered through Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated, a U.S. SEC registered investment advisor, and securities are offered through Coastal Equities Incorporated. Member FINRA SIPC, 1201 North Orange Street, Suite 729, Wilmington, Delaware, 19801.